Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. How's everyone feeling? Man, I've never felt so prepared for a Sunday morning. It's been a wild month and a half. And actually, it's been a wild year because my wife and I, it's officially been a year since we moved here from Montreal, Quebec to Orlando, Florida. And today's topic, wait, are we ready for this one? Is how science has no answers for the Nephilim in the days of Noah. Therefore, I choose faith. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's, not, it's not what we're doing. Um, so yeah, my name is Jonathan Hodges. Um, I'm going to be, you know, starting this journey with all of y'all this month. We know that Ryan, we sent off Ryan last week for a month to get some rest and rhythm. And for the next couple weeks, you're going to get a couple of us sun-scorched radicals to come up here and just kind of you know, share what the Lord is putting on our hearts in this new series. So let me pray just to get us started. After I was pretty wrecked in worship, but I'm excited what the Spirit's going to do this morning. Father, we are so grateful for your faithfulness to us. For the gift of your Son and of your Spirit for your presence here with us this morning. God, we ask that you would just guide us and lead us and shape us as your word is spoken and as we move towards communion together towards the end of the gathering today, God, would you just move in our hearts and listen to your voice. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so this year, we've been exploring faith as, a, as allegiance, the idea of faith as allegiance in several ways. This is like faith as loyalty. Our banner for the year is all in allegiance to King Jesus. So firstly, at the beginning of last year, um, we explored Jesus' manifesto for kingdom living by journeying through the Sermon on the Mount, and then into the Holy and Faithful series with Paul's letter to the Colossians, what it means to be shaped like Jesus over time. We really looked at what it means to become the beloved. I don't know if you guys remember that. I love that series. And then more recently, last month, we, uh, we went through Christian virtue, and we looked at Christian virtue as almost like signposts of who we are becoming when we partner with the Holy Spirit for transformation. Got wrecked in that series too. Another angle to exploring faith as allegiance is where we're current, what we're currently um, journeying through. And that comes from following the stories of some of the first century disciples and apostles. And in them we can see how allegiance or loyalty is a commitment over time. And it's not a one and done thing because we often fall short, so we continue to circle back. We continue to show up here on Sundays or in community groups during the week or just over coffee with a friend. And for some of Jesus' closest followers, even three years of face-to-face -face discipleship wasn't enough for them to fully give themselves over to him. They needed to meet their resurrected king, sit under his teachings for 40 days, wait for the Holy Spirit in the upper room to come so that pieces would begin to fall in place. But even then, there were complex issues to navigate. So perhaps some of us find ourselves in that position this morning, in that season this morning. Maybe we feel a little bit of trepidation about what it means to fully give ourselves 
over to Jesus. Maybe this spiritual journey isn't yielding the results that you had anticipated. Maybe you're feeling apathetic about spiritual discipline. Maybe you have come to doubt the role of the local church because you've been wounded by it. Or just maybe you're on fire for Jesus. And one of the challenges is on Sundays is that we are a smattering of people from all walks of life that get together here. And Ryan does an amazing, amazing job at leading all of us in context. Some of us have been following Jesus and reading the biblical text for all of 95 years. And some of us have been following Jesus for all of two hours. And some of us aren't even following Jesus at all. We're just here kind of explore what this thing actually is. And some of us have been actually following Jesus for decades, but really haven't chomped onto the meat of the story to look deeper into some of the richness and fresh perspective and revelation that comes from looking into the stories of the first disciples and apostles. So Wandering Home seeks to unearth the fruitfulness of unpacking their stories, and draw parallels that can bring insight into our spiritual journey. So last week, we looked at the life of Peter. And this week, we're going to be looking at an entirely new beast, the outcast of the original 12, the Apostle Paul. So firstly, in many pockets of Western evangelicalism, we've assumed the Christly task of dividing the sheep from the goats. And in doing so, we've done, what we've done is commodify the story to fit into our denominational theologies. And one of the postures that has crept very subtly into the church is the categorization of Christianity and Judaism as two major world religions, and we've pinned them against one another. But in the first century, when the church was exploding onto the scene, there was no such categorization of Judaism versus Christianity. In the first century, year 38 to 70, post-resurrection, there was a small Jewish sect within Israel called the Way, who really believed that a marginalized Galilean from a poor family who along with many struggled to exist under Roman occupation, Jesus of Nazareth had come to demonstrate and fulfill the whole story of Israel. All the law and the prophets fulfilled in his life, death, and resurrection. Absolute craziness. After generations of perceived silence, Yahweh, the God of Israel, had come through by showing up in the most unanticipated series of events ever. So this morning, we're sort of entering into the denouement, as the French would say. Always got to plug French since I'm from Montreal. You know what I'd say? So it's where the strands of the story are being drawn together. And we need to remind ourselves that it's first and foremost an Israel that by the power of the Holy Spirit is being stirred into its truest vocation, its truest purpose. And this small Jewish sect called the Way, post-cross and resurrection, had grown from 12 disciples to 120 to 3,000 Jews in and around Jerusalem. And they were clinging to this new story in Christ Jesus, the way was now poised to explode into the movement we know eventually engulfs the Roman Empire from within. This is the power of the gospel. This is why we're sitting here this morning. The gospel is being spread to the entire known world through Israel, beyond Israel, reaching across ethnic, language, and class divides, breaking down social barriers, bringing together differences, and this is catching some Jewish elites and aspiring Jewish elites off guard. And one of those aspiring Jewish elites is our focus this morning. 
And he's a young man that goes by the name of Saul. Saul being his Hebrew name and Paul being his Greek name. Can I just have my water? It's going to get bad. (laughs) So I'll be weaving in and out of some biographical context this morning, so just bear with me. I think it's important, especially with Paul, because, I mean, you got volumes. Volumes is an understatement, too. So Saul, I'm going to refer to him as Saul for a while here because we're a lot more like Saul. So Saul, born in Tarsus, east of Greece, in the south-central corner of what is modern-day Turkey, nowhere near Jerusalem. Saul was born into an Orthodox, Greek-speaking, Jewish family of the tribe of Benjamin. So we know that in the biblical narrative, if we've read the story, that Benjamin was the youngest son of Jacob. Now, as Benjamin was coming out of the womb, Jacob prophesied over his youngest son, Benjamin, and we see this in Genesis 49, 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey, and in the evening, he divides the plunder. This prophecy was most certainly imparted into the fabric of the tribe of Benjamin because they were ferocious warriors in the Old Testament, especially on the field of battle. And it was through the tribe of Benjamin that came the first Israelite king. What was his name? Saul. So that tells you a little bit something about Saul's family. So like every Orthodox Jewish family, they carefully remembered their story. They observed their story, the Jewish law and tradition. And as was per custom, his parents likely took Saul around the age of seven over to Jerusalem to grow in Torah and Talmud. And he eventually studied under the great Pharisaic sage by the name of Gamaliel. He was held in high esteem by all of Israel at the time. Sidebar, this Gamaliel in the book of Acts shows leniency to the apostles of Jesus. So I don't want our minds to kind of interpret all Pharisees to be what we're actually imagining them to be. You don't want to mischaracterize all Pharisees. So part of me is actually really curious when I'm actually, when I'm reading Saul's story, I'm kind of curious if Saul ever brushed shoulders with a young Galilean carpenter by the name of Jesus in his younger years. Born around the same time, so close in age, likely frequented the same synagogues, observed the same traditions. Saul also learned how to work with leather extensively, and he was an expert so that he could support himself on his journey, with working with his hands. Saul had a bilingual mother tongue to start off, Hebrew and Greek, and he quickly picked up Aramaic along with his studies. So he was fully trilingual by the age of 16. So by his late teens, Saul moves north of Jerusalem to Damascus. It's actually a 50 Seven-hour walk. I looked it on Google Maps. With the entire Septuagint memorized. This is the old, uh, sorry, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And it was custom in their tradition to memorize the entire Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Rather than carry around scrolls all the time, I'm sure it was easier for conversation. (laughs) So Saul was on the path. He was a top student of the law. He hung out around synagogues, surrounded by his peers, Pharisees, elders. Saul was passionate and flourishing in his merits to be the next guy in line. 
And he was a lover of Yahweh, a brilliant thinker and tent maker poised to take his place in the vocation of religious oversight and counsel. He was ready for the high courts. Education looked a little bit different back then. So this is where we enter into the story. So you can open up your, your apps, your Bible apps, because we're actually just going to comb through three chapters in the Acts. And not all of it will be up on the screen, so I just you know, invite you to have it out. Maybe not close it, look at it later, because um, most of it won't be up on the screen. But we'll be elevating a couple verses in chapter 7, and then we'll dive in into chapter 9. But for the most part, I'm just kind of going to dialogically preach through three chapters in the Acts to summarize the beginnings of Saul. So the story of Saul all starts with Stephen, our first martyr, preacher, deacon man. Stephen, full of the spirit and wisdom, a young elected preacher by the early Jerusalem church, gets sent out to preach in the city squares outside of Jerusalem. Now, the church in Jerusalem are having hospitality issues, so they had to deal with it, but then they sort of reminded themselves, well, we need to get the message out. So they selected a bunch of deacons and preachers and sent them out into the surrounding cities. And Stephen was one of these men. And on his journey, Stephen runs into some aspiring elite Greek-speaking Jews in the Damascus area who wholeheartedly disagree with what he's preaching. And Saul is leading this charge. Saul is leading this charge. Saul begins to provoke and stir up accusations about Stephen. And by rounding up some like-minded teachers of the law, elders, local Pharisees, within the same school of thinking. And together they apprehend Stephen and take a 56-hour hike south to bring him to Jerusalem before the Sanhedrin. And it's important to note, I mean, I know a lot of people are watching The Chosen, and it kind of depicts this really well. But the Sanhedrin is a supreme religious, political, legislative, educational body, an all-in-one body, and re- they represent the Jews. And Rome actually acknowledged them as the leader of the Jews. So it's important to know who the Sanhedrin are and why people get brought to them to be like, this is what this guy did, guilty or not guilty, right? Very similar. You could draw parallels to today's just court Law, whatever you want to call it. So here's this young man, Stephen, brought before the Sanhedrin, still full of the Spirit, (laughs) and he proceeds to proclaim the gospel. This is how he defends himself. He just proclaims the story all over again. This is in Acts chapter 7, verse 1 through 51. This is a brilliant apostolic gospel sermon, like a pure gospel proclamation. It's amazing. 51 verses. Well, it doesn't end very well for Stephen. According to a worldly measuring stick, his sermon career crumbles in one sermon. So let's elevate chapter 7, verse 57, 58, on the heels of Stephen's proclamation before the Sanhedrin. Here's what happens. It'll be up on the screen. At this, at this, Stephen's proclamation of the gospel, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. How many times have we covered our ears and yelled at the top of our voices and rushed to judgment on someone who's telling another story? How many times have we gathered like-minded people to be in our corner, to cover our ears, to yell at the top of our voices and rush to judgment on our neighbor? 
Here we have the beginnings of the Apostle Paul, assuming his Hebrew name Saul, receiving gifts from bystanders as a gesture to honor him in his work to preserve the purity of Israel's story. You can just picture the madness of this scene and maybe draw some parallels to what's happening in our surrounding culture today. But Saul is in a great spot here. People are praising him. He's fulfilling his calling. See, back in those days, many Jewish families were shaped to honor their Jewish tradition, their identity as God's chosen people. They were loyal to preserve their identity and rights as Jews in a changing world under Roman occupation. In fact, the Jews were always so fired up about preserving their rights and identities as Jews. Their zeal and loyalty was said to have exceeded that of the Spartan zeal and loyalty towards Caesar and Rome. Is that movie? We all Spartans. I use that as a war cry to get through the crowds at hockey games. And the Jews even succeeded at having the Romans make accommodations for them to be set apart in culture, permitting them to observe their religious exemptions. And for the most part, people like Saul, with the help of others, prevailed to maintain the law and their identity as Israel, and they were very proud in doing so. So the Sanhedrin, Saul, and the crowd were comfortable with the status quo. It was working in their favor. So why not try to maintain or preserve their preferred narratives or outcomes? This new story that Stephen was preaching shook it up, and this was the last thing they wanted. So we see in Saul's beginning that Saul was stepping into the promise of his prime years serving God and country. Saul was determined, likely by ego, to preserve Israel's national identity by any means necessary. And realistically, Saul was an arrogant, a zealous, arrogant, religious bigot on a vendetta against those who believed Jesus is Messiah, dragging them out of their households and throwing them into prison. So we see in, in Acts chapter 8, great persecution breaks out against the followers of Jesus on Saul's dime after Stephen's stoning. Acts chapter 8 verse 3, Saul begins to wreak havoc on the church. And the Greek word that is used here is equivalent to speak of wild animals mangling dead human bodies. It's ugly. It's not It's not nice. We, like Saul, often carry religious political vendettas against those who believe differently than us. And when we microwave our God in the flavors of our religious politics, we cease to embody the gospel. And when I say religious political, I don't just mean your political allegiance. I mean anything that exists in our lives that we hold to so tightly or covet with closed fists that it forfeits the finished work of Jesus and abdicates our loyalty or our allegiance, our loves, our habits, our devotions, our way of thinking to anything other than Christ. Sadly, some of us in the church have expended more of our allegiance towards pursuing and preserving our own preferred idea or outcome for the world around us. And it's largely come at the expense of listening and embodying the gospel in our relationships. When our allegiance is wrapped up in preserving our own preferred outcomes in the world, it strips the joy out of discovering what God is doing in his son for the next. How many of us currently find ourselves fearful, bitter, frustrated, or angry because our preferred story or religious politic is being challenged? Some of us 
now are finding ourselves so fearful, so bitter, so frustrated, angry towards people in our lives because our preferred story isn't being endorsed, that we can't see a way forward. As believers, if we're failing, if we're falling into this snare, we might simply be unwilling to surrender our pride and privilege at the cross. Painful subversion should be a daily posture we assume in light of the cross. These cultural challenges that we're facing right now, church, aren't too big for the Spirit of God to overcome. We must dig deeper, press in, and listen for the voice of Jesus. Why? Because every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain will be made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain. So I thought it'd be a, a good idea to take a few moments you know, just to kind of introspect a little bit, to name and lay these distractions down before the resurrected Christ. We're on the other side of the story. He'll certainly take us up on how to navigate moving forward in the polarity of things and bring healing in his time. So we're going to take two minutes. There's going to be three questions up on the screen. There will not be sad music in the background. It will, it will just be beautiful silence, beautiful, awkward silence. So there are going to be three um, questions up on the screen that can help inspire you. But if the Lord is stirring something in your heart, just, just bring it to him. We'll come back in two minutes. You can dim, dim the lights if you want. Oh. Nope, that's not it. It's towards whom am I impatient with bitter, frustrated? There you go. Might want to bring down the lights up on the stage so you can see the questions. Let's ask the Lord. Towards whom am I impatient with? Bitter, frustrated, or angry towards? What am I afraid of? Show me, Lord. Towards whom am I impatient? Bitter, frustrated. We need to value a posture that begins with humbly listening to the stories that surround us. Let's turn or scroll over to Acts chapter 9. We're going to dive into our main portion of Scripture this morning. It'll be up on the screen as well, so you don't have to do it all yourself. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Meanwhile... 
Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. 56 hours walk. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see nothing. He could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how, he much, how much he must suffer for my name. Stop right there. <laughs> I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Do I fully understand the suffering Christ is talking about here is very much reserved to Paul's journey and most of Christ's first disciples and apostles in the ways that they all suffered with their lives to see the King Jesus gospel spread. But the Spirit just stopped me here, had me dwell on this line at length to let these words wash over me. Like, do the same. We need to let these words wash over us as followers of Jesus. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. To what degree are we willing to suffer to see the life of Jesus inhabit our relationships, our families, our friendships? From a place of privilege and comfort, this is hard to imagine how we suffer because we have it so made. Even Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. But let's be real, there's always, there are always ways that the human experience is suffering in our context. The Satan is super stealthy. We're called to press in deeper and bring healing in these areas. And often, if not always, the path to healing is through the way of suffering. Suffering in our context looks a lot more like releasing our ego's grip on self-determination and being more open-handed to the possibilities of God in every situation, no matter where people stand. Every situation, every circumstance, every conflict, every person matters to Christ. Let's pick it back up in verse 17. 
Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. I love it. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Sometimes Jesus might be asking us to be an Ananias, courageously caring for those who are in a season of disorientation and blindness, even though it might frighten us. We are chosen by Christ to enter in and to heal and to feed, to fill and to send. And sometimes we're like Saul, knocked off our high horse, blind as a bat, waiting and praying, disoriented. And in these kind of seasons, seasons we need to also anticipate being healed by someone we least expect. And we see in this passage, as we grow in our allegiance to Christ, he establishes our need to familiarize ourselves with his voice. Our need for each other and to fill each other with the Holy Spirit. And ask the band to come back up. After being filled with the Holy Spirit, after being baptized and eating some food to regain his strength, Paul decides to take a six-day hike south from Damascus to spend roughly 10 years in Arabia. 10 years. The region of Mount Sinai, where it all started, to get reoriented to this new story. How many of us are willing to embrace the time it takes to get reoriented? After 10 years, Paul returns to Damascus to join some disciples out in the rural areas of Damascus for an additional three years. Slowly putting his faith into practice, periodically preaching in Jewish synagogues where his message is actually rejected. But he has to evade persecution, and Barnabas and a couple disciples help him escape the city in a basket. And then he goes back to Jerusalem. So this is about, what, 13, 14, 15 years later from his road to Damascus moment, his private revelation with the Lord. And he escapes Damascus in a basket, and then he returns to Jerusalem to finally meet the apostle James and Peter, almost 20 years later. It's crazy. It's absolute craziness. And so James and Peter connect him to a Jewish community in Jerusalem, and his message is rejected there. And they're like, you know what, Paul? You need to go back home. So that's what they do. They send Paul back to Tarsus, south central, south South Central Turkey. I didn't look that up on maps. I didn't even need to. It's pretty far. And it's likely there that Paul draws up his missionary map to plant churches first in Philippi, then Galatia, and Colossae, Ephesus, Corinth, Thessaloniki. He visits them on the first lap, simultaneously writes letters to the church on the second the most positive and encouraging letters from prison along his prolonged journey in relative obscurity where he endures through shipwreck, suffering, persecution, prison. Paul the entire time, in fact, desires to reach Spain, but he never actually reaches Spain. He gets an audience with Caesar in Rome twice and is martyred under Nero on his second trip. Saul, after 
or Paul, after be, having a private revelation with Jesus, is blinded, hospitalized, and healed of his blindness by a stranger who addresses him as brother. He gets baptized, eats, then goes out into the desert, gets reoriented for a greater part of 20 years. Paul returns humble but determined and focused to fulfill a new purpose and a new mission. What a beautiful testimony to how Christ can radically transform our trajectory. To be defined by the curse or transformed by the cross. Do you need a trajectory change this morning? Are you hungering for a trajectory change this morning? Saul moves from being curse-shaped, praying and plundering people in the spirit of self-righteousness to Paul being cross-shaped, practicing a faithful presence that embodies peace in the midst of long-suffering. So we're going to turn towards communion together this morning. A time of, of communal examination together before we partake in the elements. So we're going to take a couple minutes to turn towards our neighbor specifically three minutes to share briefly what has stirred in our hearts this morning and pray over one another and fill each other with the Holy Spirit. There'll be questions up on the screen as a guide to inspire dialogue, but more importantly, if the Holy Spirit has laid something on your heart, bring that to the conversation. Questions will be up on the screen. How can we move from assuming a curse-shaped posture to living a cross-shaped reality? Myself, in my marriage, in my relationships, in conversations, in the workplace. Let's bring the house lights down just for a couple minutes so we can all, and you can talk, you can talk about it, chat. Converse, if you're sitting on your own, please move to the, the stranger next to you.
we motion to wrap up our discussions. We're going to be taking of the elements together, so it'll be room left first, and you kind of come down in a circle like this. So you, this side of the room first, the, the elements are right here on this podium thing. And so you come down, you just grab one, and then you come back up and across so that the whole room can kind of do this in synchronicity, hopefully. So we'll start right now. And you can come up. Again, if, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is great. If you're not, we just invite you to observe and, and just listen and reflect on some of the words as we move towards this time of communion. This is a holy moment. This is one where we enter in um, into one of the greatest stories ever told. Yeah, so you just come down to this one and then around like this. Is it the other way? I don't know. I think I think that works. Theaters. Once you get back to your seats, you can just hold the elements. Reflect a little bit on your discussions. on the power of this demonstration, of this demonstration of selfless sacrifice, this demonstration of love, this demonstration of humility. After Paul's journey of reorientation in Arabia, enduring through shipwrecks, suffering, persecution, and prison, somewhere along the way, he writes the following to the church in Corinth. And here we get a glimpse into Paul's fresh heart, an invitation to what it really means to live in light of the cross. These words will wash us into communion as we partake in these elements. Provoke a time of just examination you and the Lord, I want a gratitude, surrender, worship. I invite you to br just bring your heart, mind, and soul to the table in the next few moments. In full awareness that Christ is in our midst. So where can you find someone truly wise, truly educated, truly intelligent in this day and age? Hasn't God exposed it all as pretentious nonsense? Since the world in all its fancy wisdom never had a clue when it came to knowing God, God in his wisdom took delight in using what the world considered foolish, the cross of all things, to bring to, bring to those who trust him into the way of salvation. While Jews clamor for miraculous demonstrations and Greeks go in for philosophical wisdom, we go right on proclaiming Christ crucified with our lives. Jews treat this like an anti-miracle, and Greeks pass it off as absurd. But to us who are personally called by God himself, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's ultimate miracle and wisdom all wrapped up in one. 
Human wisdom is so cheap, so impotent, next to the seeming absurdity of God. Human strength can't begin to compete with God's weakness. Take a good look, brothers and sisters, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you. Not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? Chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies? That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start comes from God by the way of Jesus. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.